I was hanging out the towels. We were trying to save the world. I was picking up the house. Why don't you put it down? Come over. Come over. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Femidish. This is a podcast about food through a feminist lens, where we elevate the stories of women by celebrating their unique abilities to nourish themselves and one another. My name is Sandy, and I'm here with my co-host, Hope. Hi, Hope. Hey, everyone. And we are very excited for our guest tonight, Cherie Scott. She is the creator and founder of Mumbai to Maine, a culinary blog and podcast. Hi, Cherie. Hi, thank you for having me. We are so excited that you are here tonight. Thank you for taking the time. How are you doing on this lovely, warm, almost summer evening? I am so, so, so good. Um, I'm actually feeling very grateful today that um, I'm able to sit here and share this time with you both and um, share my story um, of Mumbai to Maine with your listeners. I think this is such a fantastic podcast. I see great things for it down the road. And um, I really feel honored to like be asked to be here today on your show. So thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, we feel just the same. So Cherie, where in Maine are you? So I am based in Booth Bay. Um, it's a quaint uh, town here in Midcoast, Maine. So Cherie, tell us about Mumbai to Maine. So Mumbai to Maine is, um, it's my passion project. Um, it started back in 2015. Um, it was a you know, it was sort of a, a moment, a very casual moment between my husband and I. We were having some very dear friends over for dinner. And um, I think they were going to feature me on their blog. And I had mentioned to them that I wanted to cook them up this really amazing Indian feast. Um, and I hadn't really cooked up a real authentic Indian meal, I don't think ever, really, at that level. And so I started getting obsessed about it, and all I did was read and, you know, talk about it and do research on all the dishes and the spices and the methods. And at one point, my husband just looked at me and said, oh, my God, please. He's like, I need you to stop talking about it, and please go write about it. (laughs) And so (laughs) in that defining moment, um, my blog was born. Um, And he was so sweet and encouraging. He brought me a camera. He got me a book on food photography. So it goes with the camera. And then he also went as much as far as much to set up a blog, you know, a domain for me. And uh, he gifted it all to me one day, you know, over the holidays. And he said, this is for you. He said, "I, I know how passionate you are about Indian food. And He's like, I just want to see you take this to another level and share it with an audience that I know you're going to build over the next few years. And he said, um, this, is, this is going to bring me so much joy to see you so happy. He'd also built me this absolutely beautiful kitchen. It took him three years to build it. And, um, you know, when he built that space for me, it sort of became like my um, my sort of my happy place, my incubator for Mumbai Domain. And in that space, like I felt so inspired. It was like the one place in the whole house that even though we all shared time in that space, it was still mine. Um, And I just remembered cooking up this marvelous dinner for these friends of mine. And when they left, it was like there was a spark that, you know, sort of happened inside me. And it just kind of took a life of its own. I took a food writing class And then I started writing about, you know, really old, old memories of my childhood. I mean, I'm, I don't want to mean to sound like I'm ancient, but 
just when I was younger, living in Mumbai, you know, um, with my parents and my sister, we, we lived in an apartment filled with, you know, just the most incredible people from different walks of life. We had Hindus and Muslims and Jains and Parsis, and we were going Catholics. Um, we had, you know, every different kind of cuisine going on in one building and we would all smell what everybody else was cooking up and we'd share with each other. So at Diwali, you know, we'd have all this wonderful food show up at our doorstep. And then at Christmas, we'd send out a whole platter of cookies to all the neighbors. And then, you know, for Bakri Eid, we'd have mutton, you know, curry show up at our door in a warm, you know, sort of earthen clay pot. And so my palate was so highly seasoned as a child and it stuck with me. It stayed with me for years. So even though I didn't really get enough time in the kitchen with my mother, um, I knew exactly what things were supposed to taste like. And I knew more so than anything what they were supposed to smell like. The aromas were way more important to me. Like that sense memory was in my archives forever. Um, and so with a highly seasoned palate and that sort of very in tune memory of what everything was supposed to taste like even though I didn't learn to cook Indian food and I'm not kidding you until I was about 32 and my daughter was four <laughs> um you know now I'm like what 33 you know I'm just kidding but um <laughs> you know I was able to use that as my food compass you know it was my palate compass like it, it guided me through it and I was like it has at this stage it has to smell like this okay yeah this smells like mom and that's how I knew because my mom lived in Vancouver when we we, we moved from Mumbai we moved to Vancouver when I was 16 and then I moved to New York City and then we moved to Maine years later my husband and I so like I didn't have my mom around to guide me through anything um, and the most was a phone call, you know, and I remember once I had this funny conversation with my mom who's passed now, but God bless her. But she said to me, she said, I gave you all these spices years ago. I said, mom, that was like 20 years ago when I went to New York city as a kid, you know, trying to go to college. I'll tell you this funny story about my mom. She, God bless her. She, you know, Indian moms are extremely nurturing and, um, my mom made sure we were all fed way before she put a morsel of food in her mouth. It was very important to her. And she could not understand how I was going to survive in the city that never slept without her spices. So I'm 16 years old. Um, you know, I audition, I get into a musical theater in New York City. And so by the time I graduated at 18, I was ready to go. It was the day after my prom. My bags were packed. I showed up in LaGuardia, got to my dorm room, and I opened up this suitcase that was stuffed because she had packed everything in there for me in bulk because everything was so expensive in the city. And right on top of it, it was almost like she'd put it in last minute. She probably stayed up all night doing this for me. She's such a sweetie. Were the most incredible blends of Indian spices, all ground, all labeled with her cursive writing in these wow. little sachets, these package sachets, all tied up with ribbons and gold. And she sent me off to New York City with really treasures, with with spice treasures that yeah. I appreciate so much now looking back at it. But then I just remembered opening up and I knew that smell. As soon as I opened my suitcase, I'm like, oh my God gosh, how did she do this? This is not how I wanted to come to my dorm 
at the American ah. Musical and Dramatic Academy. Okay. I did not want to smell like garam masala. I'm telling you, I really did not. <laughs> and I was. No, did you even have a kitchen? <laughs> yes, we did. We had a communal, communal kitchen, you know, where all the kids at the dorm cook. And I, there was no way, in no way I was going to open up those spices and cook. And so I'm opening up the stuff, like dreading it because. We are in the shoe box of a tiny little studio, literally with bunk beds, a sink right there next to the foot of our bed. And there's Trisha Ridgeway, my brand new roommate from Palm Springs, California. Gorgeous tan. She smells like Bath and Body Works. Her entire uh. apple line is like in front of her mirror. And her mom's there, dropped her off. And I know they can smell this stuff. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, they, what are they going to think of me? Like, is she going to regret having me as her roommate? And at that point in time, I was so immature. I so wanted to be anything but Indian at that moment. I wanted to be an all-American star. Like, I didn't want to be associated with India at that point. Indian food, I was in New York City. I wanted to find out who the new me was going to be. And um, I don't even know what I did with those spices, but I know they were out of that room. And years later, you know, when I had finally moved to um, to Maine with my daughter, she was nine months old. You know, I never made Indian food. I never, you know, I can tell you this right now. I can make the meanest, most delicious pot roast you've ever had because my husband, guy, you know, he's a good old Scottish boy and he knows his meat and potatoes. And I wanted to make sure I was the best cook that made him the best dish he's ever had. So I mastered all of that. But the funny thing is, you know, I'll never forget, it was Valentine's Day, and my husband said to me, he said, guy said, Cherie, why don't we go to Indian food? Why don't we go to an Indian restaurant? And I said, no. And, I, and he said, why? You're Indian. I said, I know. I said, but you're not going to like it. And he's like, what do you mean I'm not going to like it? I don't even know what it's supposed to taste like. How would I know if I'm not going to like it? And so we ended up going to an Indian restaurant. This is in New Jersey before we moved to Maine. And we had the worst service that day. It was Valentine's Day. You can only imagine what that's like. And there was this man who was our server. He didn't speak any English. And he was like, here's the menu. What do you want? And thankfully, I knew the menu inside out because I just knew Indian food. So I just looked at it and I was like, okay, give us one of this, one of that, et cetera. And it all showed up at the table like almost an hour later. The service was so slow. Oh, my gosh. And I'm sitting there so stressed out because I'm thinking we're starving. And what if he's going to eat everything I ordered? Like, this is not going to be a good night. So the food starts showing up, and I'll never forget Guy's face. He put the first morsel of food in his mouth, and then he looked at me in his big blue eyes, and he said, oh, my God, this is delicious. What is this? Yes. What am I eating? <laughs> and I had this, like, moment of relief. I was like, oh, my God, thank God. And I said, that's lamb biryani. And he goes, what is this? What is this red stuff? What is this great? I said, that's lamb korma. And he goes, I don't care what it is. This is lamb scotto. He's like, I want you to get me this anytime we go to any restaurant. I want you to learn how to make this. This is amazing. It's the best thing I ever put in my mouth. And at that moment, yes. I was like, okay, yes, I did marry the man of my dreams. <laughs> he truly loved me for who I am. I don't need to shy away from being Indian and think that he's not going to love me because that." you know, I smell like cumin or coriander or whatever, you know. Um, <laughs> and I was like, that was a turning point in our relationship. And we were already married by then and everything. But I just think in my heart, I was just like, oh, my God, I can truly just be 
who I want to be around him. Like, you know, and it was great because I was like, okay, great. He knows what I, he knows, he knows what I eat. He knew what I grew up with. So this is great. So fast forward, we moved to Maine and my daughter's now four and going to a beautiful school here in Etchka, Maine. Um, just a fantastic school called CERN Center for Teaching and Learning. And every night we'd put her to bed and she'd say to me, Mom, can you please, I don't want any more of these stories. Could you please just tell me real stories, like stories about what life was like for you when you were a little girl? And at first I was so like taken back with this. And I thought, okay, this is coming from the school she's going to because she was now six going there. And she was... It was almost like she was storied out all day, so she wanted the real deal from mom. So I started tapping into these childhood memories of myself growing up in Bombay, you know, which we call it Bombay then, but, you know, growing up in in my little town of Bandra and um, what it felt like to be a child who was just always starving and constantly eating the prep before my mom even put food on the table, which drove her nuts, which is why I was shooed out of the kitchen so much. And I kept telling her all these stories about mangoes and how I'd sit on the tree and literally suck the mango right off the, you know, the skin, bite into it, spit it out, and then keep sucking at the mango until it was dripping all over my chin and over my school uniform. And my mom would yell at me to come back and she'd be like, (laughs) and things like that. And you know, it's amazing to me. She started getting like really excited about every night's story and every night I was coming up with this stuff like it was so deep and it was so sort of hidden from my trying for so many years to not think about it or talk about it just because life had moved on and I, you know I was like wow this is this is really this is really fun for me yes so I said to her I said Sophia I said would you like me to 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 host like an Indian day at school at your school and she said yes and I said okay and now keep in mind I'd not cooked Indian food at all I hadn't done it at all but I knew exactly what it tasted like and I was so excited about this project like I went to her school and I set up like scent stations and spice stations and Indian clothing and Indian jewels and dress and garb and salwar kameezies and saris and bindis and namaste and i found out you know who invented chess it was an indian you know i found out all these neat facts and factoids about india just to make it fun for somebody who's five through a you know like a 13 14 year old graduating ctl all in one classroom in the for morning meeting and i learned so much about india doing that and i had so much fun and at the end of this whole presentation she said the best thing to me that night when we were going to bed she said mom this was the happiest day of my life. And I oh said, wow, gosh. thank you so much, I said, why? And she said, because I found out I'm half Indian. Wow. And that moment stuck with me forever. And talk about, you know, being a feminist. It was This was more about who I even am. And I thought, wow, shame on you, Sheree. Like, for six years of her life, she didn't even know that. She didn't even know she was half Indian. I, I hadn't been in touch with my Indian, my roots, who I was at my core in the span of her entire life up until then. And she had no sense of who her mother was and who she was partly, you know what I mean? So um, that was a cue for me. That was a huge turning point in my life. And I realized at that point that I had spent so much of a decade 
trying to be American that I'd forgotten what it was like to be Indian. And um, I made a pact with myself that day that Mumbai Domain was going to be a really important part of my life story from that very day. And it came really from the mouth of babes, right? From my sweet little girl who was six. But, um, you know, from that time onward, it sort of, Mama Domain took its, took on its own trajectory. You know, it started out as the blog. And then um, eventually, I think, uh, word got out and Stonewall Kitchen approached me. And um, Kate Chessaw, who was the um, Stonewall Kitchen school director, approached me and said, you know, we'd really like for you to come and teach a few classes. Um, we've heard a lot about your food and we love your blog and your writing. And we just think it would be really neat to to give you a platform. And I was so honored by that because I'm certainly not a chef and I don't th- consider myself an Indian chef in any way, but I thought, great, I'm going to take this as an opportunity to create a series um, on Indian cooking. And it's not going to be the basics. It's going to be true regional representation of India. And so I created the series and he was so jazzed by it and it sold out. It was so popular where I took North India and I featured, yes, I did the butter chicken and I did the, you know, the samosas and the kheer and all that. And then I did southern India and I did the rasams and the masala dosas. And um, I did, I think it was like East India where I did Calcutta and I did, you know, the firni and the bakoras. And um, it was it was just really wonderful. And then, of course, I did one on Goa, which is where I'm from. So I'm Portuguese Indian. My ancestors have Portuguese blood in them. The Goans, um, basically, Goa was um, ruled by the Portuguese for many, many centuries. And then the British came in and took over. And so in that time, you know, we basically were Portuguese Indian descendants, my parents and myself. So we were actually Catholic. Um, We'd go on food, Portuguese food, Indian food, all mixed together, beautiful blend. And so I did an entire class on that as an homage to my mom. And it's interesting, you know, my first class, I'll never forget, I was teaching a group of 12 ladies. It was in the middle of the afternoon during the week. And when I finished the class, I said, so ladies, do you have any questions? And the first lady who said something, I said, could you please tell us your name so that everyone can, you know, hear your question and repeat, repeat your name or whatever. And she said, it's Regina. And I burst into tears because my mom had just passed away. She never got to see me teach a class at Stonewall. She never got to know that I embraced Indian food the way I did and that it would end up becoming such an important part of my life. Um, And I felt like she was right there that day in that class, sitting front row and center in this woman named Regina. And the lady went on to say, of course, I came out from behind the counter and she gave me a big hug and the whole class clapped and everyone was so like emotional. And um, and she said, do you know I'm Portuguese? And I said, no. She goes, yes, I'm Portuguese. And she goes, that's what drew me to your class. And it was just an amazing moment for me. I felt like that moment when I took my mom's spices right, and I hid them because I was so embarrassed. And like 15 years later, there I was, you know, completely embracing everything she made me. Right. And raised me. And I was doing it with a bunch of strangers, you know, in a room full of people I didn't know. 
And um, it was like a full circle moment for me, you know, to feel like it's okay to be who I am. It's it's an amazing thing to be who I am. And um, and I took that very personally from that day onward. I was like, you know, whenever I represent, I am going to represent who I am at my core and where I came from and be proud of it. And in many ways, I ended up becoming a really good role model for my daughter in doing that because um, she's extremely proud of being half Indian and will take any opportunity to make sure she tells you that. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I look at her and see the pride in her eyes about who she is. And she says, Mom, it makes me so unique. She goes, I love that I have Indian blood in me. And she's the one on Duolingo sitting and learning Portuguese. It's amazing. Like, she's like, Mom, can we please learn Portuguese together? And I said, of course. And Portuguese is a particularly hard language, too. I have really? To well, see, I don't know, because the only Portuguese I ever knew was Konkani. It's a dialect of Portuguese from Goa, you know, when the Goans speak Konkani. And uh, my mom and dad mm-hmm. used to speak it in code so that we wouldn't understand what they were saying. So sadly, oh, I never gosh. learned it. Um, so it's like a double double miss on my part. And it's interesting. My daughter um, has embraced everything about Indian culture, everything about, you know, everything about Mama to me to her core. You know, it's, it's just amazing. So she's way more wiser than I am. I can tell you that. And I'm a better human because of my child, truly. So, yeah. Wow. So that's the story of Mama to me. So, so that's kind of how it's taken on a life of its own. And then, um, I don't know, I just feel like um, the Stonewall Kitchen thing has taken off and they, they invite me back every season um, to curate another series and I can't tell you how much fun it is to stand there in front of a sold out class of 36 people and represent um, an entire nation <laughs> and make sure that I, I am very careful with the techniques that I show and talk about and to make sure that they're accessible, they're easy to understand, that I can walk out of there feeling empowered about Indian food and not intimidated by it. That was always my mission, was that if I talk about Indian food, I'm going to make sure that um, people just feel comfortable being around it. Um, And the only way you can do that truly is by educating them about what it is they're eating. Um, So when you say masala dabba, you know, you say, this is my spice container. And I don't know if anybody else does that at Stonewall, but like when I go there, I literally take my entire spice container with me. I take all my Indian cookbooks. I take my Indian garb and I lay it all out and I let them all come up and touch it and um, sniff through all the different spices, the turmeric, the cumin, the coriander, the cloves, the cardamom, the brown cardamom, and the subtle differences. Um, And I feel like when they walk out of there, they're all ambassadors for my brand and for India. Yes, That makes me, like, feel super happy inside that the end goal is to always represent, you know, (laughs) with pride. so, yeah, so the Stonewall Kitchen thing sort of has been a lot of fun for me. It's my access to um, Mainers and beyond. And um, this past year, you know, um, end of 2019, I've just been so inspired with maker stories. And I feel like Maine, I don't know how you girls feel about this, but I'm assuming your podcast has inspired you when you've been talking to people. But Maine has the most incredible ethos with like entrepreneurs small business. It's just so inspiring to be someone um, 
here in this state as a maker, you know, making something, whether you're creating a podcast or you're creating a signature sauce line or you're creating a line of art or whatever it is, Mainers embrace um, tastemakers in a huge way. The food scene is just amazing and so collaborative. Everybody wants to collaborate. It's just fantastic. And, you know, it's just, have you noticed that? It's just great. I love that yeah. about Mainers and I love it about Maine. It's a great state. And you can fail and it's okay. They'll give you a shot and they'll even help you with your fun, fun me program. <laughs> if you fail, on your feet, they won't like, they won't damn you for it. You know, it's like, well, you should have known. Like, it's yeah. not like that. And so I was just inspired. I said, you know what? I'm a storyteller. I love sharing my story, but I am way more interested in hearing other narratives um, and the trajectories of entrepreneurs. I'm just fascinated by that whole process because it takes just ridiculous amount of chutzpah and guts and um, to put yourself out there. It's extremely vulnerable feeling as an entrepreneur to just risk it all. And in a way, like I think by hearing all the stories, I was so inspired I applied for a program called Top Gun, and yes. um, it's a fantastic. Have you heard of it? Yes. Yep. So, for our listeners who have not heard for Top Gun, will um, you explain it, please? Because a lot of our listeners are not from Maine and might not have heard of. Yeah. Top so, Gun. Um, Maine has this incredible program called the Maine Center for Entrepreneurship. It's called MCE. And if you are new to Maine and you want to start a business here, it's such a fantastic network to tap into right off the bat if you want to get into the fray of, you know, who are the mentors, um, what are the resources for small business um, startups or whatever in the state of Maine. Well, a sub part of that program is called Top Gun, and it's an entrepreneurial pitch competition with a prize is $25,000, which is fantastic. Um, but more importantly, that's an impressive, prize. An impressive <laughs> prize for for an entrepreneur, uh, it's money on the table and it's yours if you know how to pitch and, and win it. But the the entire program leading up to the pitch competition is so well designed and it's broken up into different, you know, parts of business, you know, whether it's, you know, raising capital, branding, um, you know, doing customer surveys, uh, sales, all of it. it. And they sort of built the program Um, in increments and you come into a classroom and you sit down there with the other folks who've gotten into the program. It's a very prestigious program to get into. You have to put, um, you know, your PowerPoint together and send it in and then you have to go and physically present it in front of the panel and then um, they decide who gets into the program and they take a select few because once you get in, they really invest in you, the time and everything. So, I was just like, you know, I've got this brand, you know, where I've got the blog. I've, I really want to start the podcast, which I had kicked off. And I felt like, you know, it was time for me to put out my own um, sort of my own take on Indian food and put it into jars, you know, to have released sure. my own signature line. And so I thought, what better way to do it than with Top Gun? So I pitched it. And um, they told me, they said, yeah, you got into the Portland faction and they have these different. um, um, So I was thrilled. I didn't think I stood a chance because, I mean, they said they received more applicants than they'd ever received um, in the history of Top Gun. 
and especially for Portland, as you all know, right? Portland's just sure. off the charts with makers. And um, they kept asking me, do you want to go to Waterville? And I was like, sure, I don't care. I'll go anywhere. I'm just so thrilled to be part of the program. But I did get into it in Portland, and I was so thrilled about that. So Wednesday nights, I sort of get in the car, drive to Portland, um, and it's my time from Mumbai It's just fantastic. I learned from the most incredible um, cultivators and entrepreneurs in the state of Maine. Um, and it's inspiring. You learn so much. So I think between the podcast, Maine's Bicentennial Food Podcast that I launched in January of 2020, and Top Gun, I have done more listening, um, more learning, valuable lessons um, from tastemakers and mentors. It's just been an incredible year of learning for me. So I find myself well-equipped, like physically and mentally for business, but there's nothing like actually diving into it and going, you know, full out and just being on your own. And with everything that's happened with COVID, it's interesting because it all happened at the very end of our Top Gun program. We had six weeks left to go. And there were quite a few entrepreneurs who were part of the program who had to pivot with their liquor businesses or whatever and make sanitizer. And it was it was great because, you know, we were sitting there and talking about how they were doing it and why they were doing it. And none of it was for the money. It was because it was a necessity, you know. Right. And kudos to them. It was very inspiring. So the program's still going on. Um, I mean, it's done now, but the pitch competition has still yet to happen. And um, it's exciting. You know, it's interesting to see who will end up winning it and what they do with the prize money. But be that as it may, the program is so rich and valuable. I would highly recommend it to any entrepreneur in the state of Maine, even if you've been in business for a few years and you just want to get back into it. It's like doing an MBA on speed. <laughs> the only way to do an MBA. If yeah. you're going to be not advocating for drug use. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's great. And um, I'm just constantly learning. And the guest that I have on my show for the podcast, uh, Maine's Bicentennial Podcast, has been um, so refreshing to me because each one of them have such a fabulous story. Um, most of them have been women so far. But, you know, I do have a wide spectrum of guests. And it's great because uh, most of them are like CEOs of their companies or founders. And they have all very interesting thoughts on what it's been like to be an entrepreneur. Some of them are sort of in their prime as entrepreneurs where they have been well-established for 25 years, like Mary Ellen Lindemann with Coffee by Design, um, you know, Holy Donut with Lee Kellis, and Kate McLear, who's been in business now for 10 years with Bixby and Co. Chocolates. And it's, it's great because you learn from each one of them. They're all in different stages of their businesses. And you know what's the one thing they've all told me is they all have had each other's backs. Each one of them collaborate with each other. Marianne Lindemann, Coffee by Design, gave Holy Donut her start. Gave Lee Kellis a space for her donuts when she was frying them up four at a time in her deep fryer in her house, in her little apartment, you know. And now Lee Kellis is doing so much for so many other entrepreneurs. And the same with Kate. You know, Kate won Top Gun. You know, she won it years ago. And now she sits and mentors me when I want to talk to her. And we talk chocolate and we talk business and retail and the pros and cons of all of it. So this state is just continually inspiring to me. Can you tell us more about the the Bicentennial? Like you just mentioned, a lot of the people that are on it 
Um, what are some of the, what, what's the goal of that? What does that have to do with the bicentennial? Um, what does it have to do with food? My husband has a beautiful studio in Booth Bay, and I was practically sitting in a basket of lemons, and I was like, I really need to do something of value, something that will um, provide a platform for entrepreneurs in the state of Maine, especially tastemakers, people who are cultivating food brands or, you know, anything to do with food, um, and give them a place, a safe place where they can come and really share from the heart everything, all their wins, losses, but more importantly, all the lessons learned right there in the studio. And um, so I talked to Guy about it, and he's like, this sounds fantastic. And I said, what a perfect year to launch it. It's Maine's Bicentennial. It's our 200th birthday. Um, let's talk about what has been Maine's food scene past, present, and the future. You know, where are we going with it? And so when I put together my list of guests, I truly kept that in mind as my sounding board, you know, like who do I want in the studio sharing their story? What do we have to learn from it? And so I approached them. I'll never forget. I sat there one day and I just basically sent out 25 emails and um, actually sent out 24 emails. I said, I'm going to do 24 guests in one year and put it out. And it's going to be sort of like this anthology of entrepreneurs, but with them telling their stories, not their directors of marketing, not all the spin doctors, right. but the actual founders. Um, so it's been fascinating, you know, to hear their stories. And they all wrote right back and said, oh, my God, this is fantastic. We can't wait to do this. And they've been incredibly supportive. So it'll be a great year. And, you know, who would have known when I launched this that this is where we were going to be you know, in 2020, right. that it ended up maybe not being a hallmark year for almost all of these entrepreneurs. It ended up being a pivot year for them or a year where they completely decided to walk away. I don't know. We still have six more months left, you know, in a few days. It's going to be June. So we'll see where it goes. And I'm happy to check back in with you guys and tell you how it turned out. So Sherry, I actually, your story is so dynamic and so many things that you've said has inspired like a thousand different questions for me. Um, and so I'm going to bring us a little bit back to the beginning of your story. And first I want to say that I am so sad to hear that your first night in New York city, that you were quite literally throwing out these Indian spices from your dorm, wherever they may have ended up, <laughs> whether they ended in the trash or, or wherever. Um, because my first night in New York city I had the most amazing Indian food ever. And it was the first time I had Indian food. And this is, I'm not making this up. My first night in New York city was the first time I ever had Indian food with my now husband. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> I have to say, I went and met this guy who I knew from when we were like 12 years old and he was living in New York city and I was maybe 18 years old. And I went to his apartment in New York from Massachusetts and he says, we're going to go see music and we go see like the most experimental kind of out there jazz ever to this day that I've ever witnessed in my life. <laughs> um, and then we like walk down and end up at this Indian spot with like a million twinkle lights above us. And I have the best meal of my life. And I end up marrying this man a decade later. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, that's a food. great beginning and um, a great story. And 
Um, just stood out to me that you spent your first night in New York City throwing out Indian spices or trying to be rid of them in some way. Whereas that really like, I feel like is like this <laughs> eye opener in my life, not only to Indian culture and foods, but just the fact that all culture and food outside of, you know, New England cuisine, which is where I was born and grew up, is amazing and incredible and dynamic and just so much more, I don't know, in your face and flavorful and just better, (laughs) for lack of better words, than, you know, potatoes, like you said, your husband enjoys. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting that when you are the person eating that food day in, day out for your entire life, and all of a sudden you are thrust into a city that never sleeps where you can literally get any cuisine at any time of the day or night, um, it was almost like sort of a molting experience for me. I was exoskeleting out of coming out of this shell that I had been in for 18 years. And I had a chance to start from scratch, you know, with a fresh palate and just kind of, it's not like we didn't have, you know, other cuisines growing up, but I just wanted to start fresh. And I think that was my mother's love letter to me was that sachet of Indian spices with her writing on it. You know, I'll never forget all the little tins and packets she had done. And it's a, it's a great learning lesson. You know, I think so many of us either feel like we need to distance ourselves from, especially as an immigrant, Um, you know, I came in, came to Vancouver with a heavy accent and I had to come to New York city and go to a theater school and take voice and speech. And it was interesting to me that all of us came to that class with an accent or a regionalism. So it wasn't just me. If you came from Kentucky, you had to get rid of your twang. So it's like (laughs) we were all sort of, it was really a leveling experience for me. I was being thrust into this new sort of um, you know, fresh load of laundry. I was being washed up and, you know, <laughs> just cleaned up for ready for the stage. And I, you know, I tell my daughter, who's an avid theater thespian and lover of all things musical theater, I said, you know, sweetie, don't give up. I told her that last night. I said, make sure you do not give up. I said, you will find yourself on that stage as an Indian on Broadway one day. It's going to happen for you. And I said, you know, I gave up. I just felt like audition after audition. I thought, what am I doing? Who am I kidding? Like, I'm never going to be on a a musical theater stage as an Indian actress. It's never going to happen. And this was, you know, 20 years ago. And there was just very little representation, you know, just not much at all. And now it's interesting when I watch anything we sit down as a family and watch I'm like oh my god there's another Indian there's another Indian it's an Indian cop it's an Indian and I'm like and anybody else watching it is just going no that's just a cop I'm like no no no, that's an Indian cop that's a big deal like this is mainstream mainstream tv this is huge and for me there was I just felt like there was no way that was going to happen for me then. And now it took about 20 years, but now you've got the Mindy Kalings of the world who are actually producing the material and writing the scripts and right. starring in their own movies. And that's fantastic. But, you know, as a real immigrant coming from India, I just, it was a very tough road. And I was at a very tender age of trying to figure out who I wanted to be now that I was here and away from my parents for the first time. And so... I don't think it was really about let me trash the spices. It was more like let me please make this go away right now because this is not who I am. I want to change who I am. I'm trying to become this big Broadway star, you know. So, 
it's neat that that got manifested through the food. Like there's lots of things like you mentioned, you know, with media and um, what that looks like in for your accent or anything like that. But just to have that physical manifestation of my culture and my differentness being physically seen through those sachets of different Indian spices, like that, that really speaks to the power of food and why that, why this is such a, a cultural marker and why it does mean so much that you can physically see it and touch it and what it means for a whole culture. So you're all, everything you just said of wanting to, to grow anew. And I love the visual of shedding an exoskeleton and coming different. Like all of that was, was tied up in just these couple of, of chassés that your mom put in to, to say, Hey, you know, don't, don't forget about us when you go to the big bad city. Um, but it's, there was so much more than that for you and what you were hoping was not getting transmitted to maybe your new roommate that had a whole different view and look and everything. And, um, so it so much is embodied in just those couple of small things, but it's through food that, um, we can have those, the, the whole culture represented. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And you know, it's interesting. I can't look at my masala daba anymore, my, my spice container anymore without, um, thinking of my mother and thinking of, that was her way of saying, you, you can become anybody you want to be, but at the end of the day, you are my daughter. Don't you ever forget it. <laughs> that was what that was about. Don't you ever forget who you are, where you came from, and what you smell like. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, now I'm always so careful when I walk out of my house. I'm like, oh, my God, do I smell a girl masala? We're going somewhere. I've been cooking all day. And I'm like, I don't care. I want right. to smell exactly like what I'm supposed to smell like. This is me. I find and it so funny. Saying, oh my, God, my, my husband, um, not religiously, but culturally, my husband's side of the family is Jewish and um it must be genetic because my children love like smoked salmon and chopped liver and all these things I never would have touched before. Mm, <laughs> and just earlier I was like snuggling my three-year-old and I said, man, you, you smell like chopped liver and, and garlic. <laughs> and it was just like, yummy. That's he had been eating like garlic um, greens, the, the leaves of the garlic plants growing in our garden. Mm. And he had had like crackers mm. and chopped liver on it for his snack. And it was just like, I'm like, man, this is just so much a part of who you are. <laughs> wow. I think that's fantastic. I mean, what a sophisticated palate. He's eating garlic scapes and, and <laughs> oh smoked gosh. salmon. And that's, that's like fantastic. You're like, <laughs> You're curating this amazing palette in this little boy. And how old is he? Um, so my children are three and are almost three. My little one will be three in about two weeks. And my oldest one will be five in September. And their favorite foods are um, pate, shrimp. Um, they're not a big fan of oysters. They did refuse the oysters, like raw oysters. But they love scallops. I can understand love, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're a little slimy and a little a little strange. Um, but really, it's like shrimp. They request shrimp often. Oh, lobster. Um, the other day, uh, Damon, who is, he'll be three on June 13th. He said to me, Mommy, I wish I had a lobster button and a blueberry button. And when I push them, lobsters and blueberries would be everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> what Aww. a main. That's such a main kid. Yes, and he was my child that was born in Maine. My oldest one was born in Florida. So I was like, that's the most Maine thing I've ever heard in my entire life. That's great. I love it. Lobster button and a blueberry yeah, button. Yeah, lobster button. button. Certainly. He's living in the right state for it. That's yeah. I'm sure he's not the only person around here that would also wish for those buttons. 
Cherie, Cherie, we like just even talking about the lobsters and the blueberries, you know, those are such like local things to Maine. And we like, and all of the restaurateurs that you're just mentioning for the Bicentennial podcast, like they really are bringing in local ingredients to all of their, all of their foods and their dishes and their products. Was that concept of local food and making sure that things were regional and local and accessible and being revered as they are here, was that the similar for you in Mumbai? Is that something that's like newish? I mean, there's lots of talk about how like the idea of, oh, buying local food in some really rural parts of Maine and New England is like, oh yeah, that's old hat. We've been doing that forever. So it can be like a, you know, a very like elitist thing to say local food, but that idea of like a strong regional connection to food or local connection, was that similar for you in Mumbai? You know, I'm so glad you asked that question because that was my entire experience growing up in India. Like we did not we, d- we don't have box stores. I mean, at least when I left 25 years ago, there were no box stores where you could just go to the food store and buy everything was local. Like we had these small little bazaars, you know, and then you'd also have fishmongers that show up your door. The milkman shows up at your door. The bread man showed up on his bicycle every morning at 5 a.m. So we got our milk and our bread first thing in the morning and then the eggs. Um, and then, of course, all the meats and everything. My mom and dad would go out on a Saturday morning, which was always designated for food shopping. They take a rickshaw, they'd go into town, and they'd go to um, the butcher who would grind up all the fresh beef for our week. And then they'd, because we just couldn't afford steak, you know, maybe a nice big pot roast, but not steak. My mom would buy tongue. Um, my mom was just fantastic. She was, she'd buy a lot of calves liver, and I love calves liver. Like, my husband will literally throw up if I say we have calves liver for dinner. Like, he's like, please, that's the one thing I cannot put through my mouth is liver. And for me, I can remember exactly what the liver tasted like when my mom made it, the onion she put in it, the masala she put in it, and then the crusty bread that we would eat with it and all the gravy was so yummy. I grew up on tongue. I grew up on, you know, um, blood sausage and all of this stuff because we're Portuguese. It was all about taking stuff and curing it because there were no refrigerators in Goa. So they just learned how to take their freshly harvested pig and how to take the, how to make vinegar out of the coconut trees that were falling, all the coconuts everywhere, make that into really fermented good vinegar and then cure that pork and keep it in earthen clay pots. And it tasted amazing, you know? And then with the influx of chilies with the Portuguese bringing in the chilies, it just changed the whole level of profile, uh, profile flavors for Goans. And so our food started taking on a very nice sort of spicy note spicy and sour and tangy and so I grew up with all of that so making like dried pork sausage or chorizo chorizo, I've been doing that with my mom since I was like six or seven years old we'd all sit in a circle and we'd cut up the blood sausage and um, the innards of you know the intestines and all of that it was all steamed and then we would sit and cut it all and wow. put it into this dish called sorbetel and it was made with spicy chilies and vinegar and it would taste only better if it was just sitting room temperature for weeks it would taste better and better and so i grew up with all of this stuff and so for me like i'm very very comfortable you know with somebody saying i want the tenderloin i'm like you can have it like give me the tongue you know <laughs> like i'm okay with that and um I just think that, you know, I had such a privileged childhood because of that in terms of my palate. I would never give that up for anything in the world. And I don't know how you guys feel with your kids, but if I I look back and I think, oh, my gosh, I cannot imagine life anywhere but in two Lakshmi Krupa 
24th Road, Bandra, Bombay, 044050. Like that was my life. That code, that address defined who and made me who I am today because I lived across from a church. So it, my faith was strong. We were Catholics, had strong foundation. But then my food profiles, everything was like sort of in this database in my head, you know. This is what mutton biryani tastes like. This is what Parsi farcha tastes like. Uh-huh. Um, you know, this is what, um, I don't know, Hindu peta sweets taste like a Diwali. Like everything was in my head and in my sort of sense memory. Wow. Um, so it's the best food education I've ever had. So, and I would really never give up those first 16 years of my life for anything in the world. Um you know, I look at my daughter and how privileged she is to just be born here and live here. And what I went through to, as an immigrant to come assimilate and be a part of this culture. And now that I'm completely situated, I find myself hearkening back to finding the unique uniqueness about me so I can stand out and have a voice. Isn't wow. that interesting? Yeah. You get here. And you want to sound like everybody and you want to talk like everybody as an immigrant. And you just want to be part of the fray and you don't want to stand out for the wrong reasons. You know, oh, look at the accent. Look at what she's wearing. Look at how she talks. Look at what she eats. And now those are the very, you know, the most distinctive reasons why I want to be noticed. I want to be noticed for being Indian because I'm proud of it. I want to be noticed for my own heritage because it's part of who I am and my DNA. Um, it represents my entire family and my ancestors, all of those things. So I think this just comes with, you know, growth, maturity, um, wisdom, you know, and and by being honest with yourself and knowing that those years that I wanted to walk as far away as from being Indian as possible <laughs> um, was important for me. I think I needed to do that so I can figure out who I was, who I was going to be and what I wanted to be when I grew up. And now I'm, I'm it, and I'm so proud of it. <laughs> that I, that's really inspirational, and I'm sure that there's lots of folks out there right now that can share that same sentiment of being different in some way or feeling different in some way, whether it's a, a culture or a nation or something else, but feeling like they just want to assimilate so badly. And so how inspirational that you now can shout it from the rooftops, really, and in the, into the podcast ether, into the internet <laughs> of being so yeah. proud of proud of those things that's that's really special and that's really inspirational thank you that's so kind of you to say and I I feel like that's the only thing I've ever earned um an a plus in is you know being (laughs) proud of who I am the rest of it is still a work in progress but you know when my daughter says mom can I have butter chicken for lunch tomorrow and I'm like really and she's like yeah I want butter chicken I'm like okay but it's gonna smell up the microwave at school you know, I'm always thinking about everybody else. And I'm thinking, what if somebody doesn't like Indian food? And then you put it in there and the microwave smells like, and she's like, mom, are you kidding me? Everybody wants my lunch at school, including my teachers. Yeah. I would also <laughs> like said, butter really? chicken for lunch tomorrow. Yeah, we have butter yeah. chicken for lunch tomorrow. Please. <laughs> like, uh, Sophia, did your mom cook butter chicken again? And she's like, yeah. And so she, she like trades out her lunch. So she loves butter chicken, but she'll trade it out. And she gets like all these other things like seaweed and stuff, these random things that the kids eat. And, um, oh my gosh, it's currency in her school. <laughs> it's currency. <laughs> yeah. I love it. You know, I love kids that are proud of opening up their lunch boxes and showing off their kimchi and um, their butter chicken and their naan and their you know, um, 
I don't know, just like, you know, their escarole soup if they've got it for lunch loaded with garlic. I mean, it's like, bring it on, you know? Yes. We are so much more interesting when we speak with our lunch boxes. And I think <laughs> as I, you know, get older, I want to, I really, I want to start this movement where it's like, what do I have for lunch today that's pretty darn cool? Let me share. I, you know, I, I think we're going to have some collaboration okay? potential where we just open our lunch boxes and take a picture. <laughs> What is yeah, and be like, you know, it's a cool. Yeah, the more unique, the better. It's like, whoa, my mom made this handmade Italian pasta with truffles and whatever, and it's from this part in this region of Italy. And, you know, it's interesting when I'm at Stonewall Kitchen and I talk about Indian food, I find so many other things to talk about, like saffron and, you know, the beauty of saffron and how hard it is to source it and who's sourcing it and where it's coming from and, um, you know, in my house, my mom always said, you know, if this building burns down, because remember, how many stoves going at the same time in that apartment building? She's like, I don't care what happens, get out, but get the saffron box and leave. <laughs> because it was the most expensive thing, right? Like, this little tiny, I still remember the little container, the tin container she had with all the beautiful sort of painting on it. And it was from Portugal. It was all this authentic saffron. And um, I just think it was really cool. You know, I... Yeah. I love spices. I love them as differentiators. And I think they teach us so much about the world. And I remember um, talking about Punjab when I was doing a whole uh, Indian food lesson on North India. And I said to the class, I said, do you know who makes the Parmesan Reggiano cheese right now in Italy? And they said, no. I said, it's the Sikhs from India. The Sikhs from India who immigrated to Italy years and years ago who are all farmers they are the ones who are milking those cows. They are the ones who are making that cheese. Of course, they have to follow all the guidelines. But they're the ones making all of it. And they're continuing a tradition that even some of the Italians don't want to do because they want to be in tech. They don't want to be farmers. They want to get out and be do all the other things and not be the farmers on the land anymore. And oh so God. the Sikhs kind of walked in and said, listen, this is all we've ever done. We're, we're farmers at heart. We're Punjabis. We're Sikhs. You know, this is what we do. So please let us milk those cows at four in the morning because that's when we pray. We're up. You know, <laughs> let's do it three, four times a day. And so if you watch this, it's an entire documentary. I think this one student in Italy uh, produced the documentary on Parmesan Reggiano and the Sikhs who are passing on this legacy and from one Sikh generation to the next. Um, and she did it as her uh, thesis for her PhD in food anthropology. Oh and it's gosh. very cool. So, you know, I think it's widely important that I commit myself to Mumbai to Maine and to always talk about where I came from, who I am. And in doing so, my children will um, be able to carry that legacy with them um, through the years with their children. Now, Cherie, we um, gave our listeners the opportunity to send in some questions before we did this interview. Um, yes, I saw that on social media. That's fine. Yeah, so it was totally the first time we did it, and we got some great um, got some great questions. So I want to ask you one in particular. Um, so one of our listeners was curious as to what are some of the differences in the culture of food from Mumbai um, to America, and maybe maybe differences that aren't like obvious. So, uh, you know, so obviously the food is different, but 
how is the food culture different? I think the food culture experience, a fantastic question, first of all. So I'm so glad they asked that. I think the food cultural, the main difference that I see is that it's a lot of scratch cooking. Um, and scratch from start, you know, blooming the spices to release the essential oils. And, um, you know, going back to rituals that maybe have been forgotten in the States where everything's about how fast can we put it on the table, you know, what's the quickest marinade? What's the shortest way of getting from stove to plate? Um, nourishment is very different. It's about, it's more about just sort of how can we nourish you so that we can get from point A to point B? Whereas in India, like cooking is, it's a part of the culture. It's part of the fabric of who we are. So Yes, we're all busy in India, too, running around, but there's street food if you want stuff to go. And even that food is, like, marinated for overnight, and it's marinated in garlic and yogurt and broken down and so tender it melts in your mouth, you know. So I think I think just in general, I think Indian cooking um, just requires a lot of discipline because you have to learn the techniques, but once you master them, you can cook on the fly, but what you're doing is your spices and your marinades are doing all the work for you. And I think those techniques have now slowly sort of turned, you know, into sort of a broader experience where it's not in India anymore. Like I hear a lot of people chonking and blooming their, their ghee and <laughs> putting all the spices into it and finding new ways of doing it, which I think is very cool. Um but I think that, to me, was the stark difference in learning to cook American food for my husband, Guy, um, and then trying to cook Indian food. Like, I'm u- I feel like I'm using two parts of my brain when I'm doing it. One's the creative side, and one's, like, just, you know, getting the meat from here to there <laughs> and on his plate. Whereas, you know, with Indian cooking, it's like, I am going to make sure I completely tenderize this beautiful piece of meat so that it's almost cooked before I even put it on this open fire or put it into this pot. Um, And the spices sort of save the dish and elevate it. And I think that's the one part that probably intimidates people about Indian food. It's like, oh, there's way too many spices involved. I couldn't be bothered or it's too intimidating. And I have found a way now to teach 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 these methods and show people at Stonewall Kitchen who come to these classes. I have a following now where people come to like every single class because it's, I just have these very basic ways of saying, this is how you bloom spices and ghee. And essentially let's like take just one simple dish. It's a lentil dish and it's called dal. Um, And I call it life-giving dal, life-giving lentils. Um, Because in India it nourishes millions of people, people who have nothing to eat, but they have, access to lentils and so they'll eat that every day three meals a day sometimes but um yeah so you basically you get the lentils and you just cook them down in a slow cooker with water that's it you don't do anything to them and then when they're completely cooked you know and they're nice and thick and you know um soft and melt in your mouth you basically take maybe three or four tablespoons of ghee and you put it into a little pot right on your stove and once it gets silky and smooth, because it's nice and hot, because ghee has the highest sort of burning point, um, smoke point, 
in it, you just throw in a few black mustard seeds and you hear them pop. It's so much fun. They start popping in the ghee and they release all those wonderful pungent flavors from the black mustard seeds, which you'd never know were in there. And then you throw in a few curry leaves. And if you don't have curry leaves, you can throw in a few chilies um, and you throw in some turmeric and um, maybe some cumin, which is wonderful and earthy. And just with the cumin, the turmeric, and maybe um, you can throw in some black peppercorns, some cloves, whole cloves. All of these spices, I call them the holy grail of Indian cooking. These, these spices, it's cumin, um, cinnamon, cloves, cayenne, um, cardamom, and coriander. If you throw those six C's in there, I would tell everybody those six C's will absolutely transform your cooking into that ghee and let them just sputter and bloom. And once they release those absolutely amazing flavors that are locked inside those whole spices, you take it and you literally open up your crock pot and you pour that ghee that's completely spice infused now into those lentils that have nothing, not even salt in them. And you close the pot and you walk away. That's it. That's all you got to do. Meanwhile, you've put a pot of rice on the stove. You made your basmati rice in like seven minutes. And then you open it up. And then you can go grill your chicken on the grill if you want. But you're going to eat the most fragrant lentils. All of those oils from those spices have now infused the ghee that has now gone sort of permeating through all the nooks and crannies through those lentils. And then you stir it up and you just ladle it right over the steaming hot rice that just makes the entire room smell mind-blowing it's it's like therapy for your brain wow um and the person that has the most fun doing this is my son justice he'll say to me all the time mommy are we gonna do tadka can we do tadka which is basically blooming spices and his favorite thing to do is the cayenne and the turmeric because they're his favorite colors it's red and yellow and it's like he loves it when the black mustard seed starts popping and he thinks it's the most exciting way to make dinner um, the other thing he likes doing is making popcorn with his dad. So I think our kids are going to be our future ambassadors for food and cultural, you know, cultural roots need to be sort of established when they're young. Right. Um, so that it becomes so much a part of who they are. They, they don't have to feel like they're trying to be something. It's just who they are. They're like, yeah, I've been eating lentils my whole life. Like, it's no big deal. And talk about ways to like break down any barriers and not make it feel like, oh, it's so different of a, of a thing to see different foods. And, you know, maybe kids, this next generation, they won't shy away from some of these things that seem different because they've been exposed to all kinds of stuff. And it, whether it's at school or at home, it's just a very normal way of, oh, like, what do you got? That's different from mine. And that's okay. Totally. I totally agree. And, um, I think we're also, the millennials today are extremely open to new flavor profiles. In fact, they demand them. They live for them. They're always pushing the envelope. What's the next newest thing? What's the next trend? Um, you know, the fact that kimchi is so hot, you know, all of this stuff. I think it's it's great. Um, and it's exciting me as a food entrepreneur for me to put out my line when it does come out. My entire line of sauces are going to be extremely regional um, and not the basic, you know, Indian sauces, which I'm sure I'll have to play into that as well for the economics, you know, to sort of balance it out. But I'm going to have fun with this line. You know, I'm really going to push the envelope and um, it's it's going to be me in that jar, you know, and I'm 
I am challenging um, the American palate to to look at these words and say, wow, what is shakuti? What is the X-A-C-U-T-I? What's that? You know, and challenge them to yeah. open that jar, buy it, try it, and know that they will keep coming back for more because it's the real deal. Um, you know, so I think that for so, so long and for far too long, I think we have just been okay with tomato sauce. And now all of a sudden, you know, we've got puttanesca from Italy. And we've not just got tomato sauce, we've got San Marzano tomato sauce. And we've got Sicilian sauce. And, and that's the beauty of Italy is that it's got all these wonderful nuances in its regional, you know, food and cuisine. And for some reason with India, it's just never taken on, you know, it's always the basics that are the the big hits. And uh, it's time for people to learn that we are, we are a nation of, you know, so many different varieties of food and uh, religions and cultures and um, I'm going to to challenge myself and my and my followers when they buy it to say, you know, yeah, this is actually Indian food. Yeah. This is home cooked Indian. Food. Yes, this is the real deal. I well, I know for one, I cannot wait for that line to come out and to educate myself. And in the little bit that we've been able to learn here, just tonight, learning, be able to educate um, anyone else that I'm eating with. Um, I want to leave us with one more question from a listener because I think um, it will uh, be a great way to wrap us up. Although I would like to have a you know meditation on loop of you just describing the the lentils with the basmati and the infusion of the spices, the way that you were describing that and talking about the the spices and the scents and the warmth and everything, it was just it was very meditative. And I just would like you to I, I want to you know fall asleep to that each night. <laughs> Um, (laughs) um, would you leave us with any final thoughts that you have learned from um, all of your conversations with the bicentennial podcast and other conversations you've had about some of the women food entrepreneurs and any of the commonalities or lessons or thoughts about anything you've learned from them Um, i'd love to hear any any final thoughts of things that you've gleaned from specifically women in the food world Oh, absolutely. I think the one most sort of common thread personality trait and thread that I kind of saw coming up over and over again with each entrepreneur was grit. Um, there's this fabulous book by Angela, Angela Lee Duckworth on uh, grit. And actually, the person who introduced me to it was Kate MacLear from Bixby & Co. Um, she's the co-founder of the chocolate company with a conscience. And um, I've noticed that each one of these entrepreneurs, no matter how talented they were, the visionaries that they really are and have been for years and through their businesses, they have had grit, um, determination. Because at the end of the day, if you don't believe in your brand and your story, no one's going to care or buy it. Nobody's going to care. If you don't buy it, nobody else is going to buy it. So for you to be able to buy your own story, you cannot fabricate. You have to truly be an original. You have to own your story in every way. Um, it's not about following the trends. Yes, you have to do that for economics, you know, so that you can be in business and be sustainable. But it's truly about who am I? Who am I? What do I want to say? Um what do I stand for with this brand? And more importantly, what do I not stand for? Who do I not want to be? Um, what is my voice and what am I going to share with it? Because it's you're literally creating an identity that you're putting out into the world. 
Um, so it becomes very much a part of who you are. So if you create something and you're asking other people to buy into it and you don't completely buy into it yourself, you're not a true original, you know, you're just trying to um, farm something out to make money, you will not succeed. Like you truly, each one of these entrepreneurs have not had an easy road. I mean, they have, oof, the stories I have heard, what they have gone through, the thousands of dollars they have lost at times, but also made. Um, it's it's absolutely gut-wrenching. You know, I don't know how they sleep at night. I don't know how any of them slept at night. But that's how much you have to believe in your brand um, for you to to even get started, let alone to be a success. Because if you don't have that grit um, it's and that belief in that core value, um, when things like this happen with COVID or the pandemics or things that just completely displace and disrupt those core values, that very beginning of why you started and what you wanted to be are the ones that are going to save you and get you through this roadmap, you know, through this hell. <laughs> um, and that's the one thing I've learned. So, you know, and I have to say this, um, this podcast, the Mains by Centennial podcast, if you have time every week to just listen to one of them, um, it will inspire you when you are launching your own brand uh, down the road or if you've had a dream that you sort of kept dormant for years and you thought, you know what, no, no one's going to care. Well, actually, yes, they will care if you care. Care enough to go public with it. Care enough to invest into it. And if you don't have the money and the financial capital to get started, put yourself out there. Enter pitch, pitch competitions. There is money out there. There are grants out there. Yes. Um, so I'm very proud to be a part of this state. I'm very proud to be the host of the show. And I'm absolutely thrilled to be here tonight with you both um, uh. to be a part of what it is that Femidish is sending out into the world as well, empowering women, women supporting women. Um, and yes, feminism is great, but more than anything in humanity right now, we just need to support each other. Um and of course, always raise women up and um, empower them That's to be wonderful. voices of change and then to help the next generation of women coming up, you know, to be trailblazers. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Thank you. Now, Sherry, I feel like we could chat for another hour um, <laughs> about Indian food and food in Maine and, you know, just your personal connection with food and women in food. Um, but you know, maybe we'll have to invite of course, you back, yes. <laughs> but it's getting late and I would love to hear about how our listeners could find out more about Mumbai to Maine. Um, where can they find you on social media? What is your website? Absolutely. Thank you again for having me. And yes, I could chat for another hour, but um, I'm going to leave you with this. Um, the website, you can find mumbaidomain.com. Um, I have all my recipes on there, all my anecdotes and my blog posts. You can also find um, my pilot for a web video series um, that is in development. You can watch that as well. And I have the second episode in post-production at this moment. And then um, you can listen to all the podcasts from Maine's Bicentennial podcast series uh, for 2020. They will all go up on my, on my website as soon as they're published. You can also find them on Apple, 
Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, um, and a host of other places as well, wherever you access your podcasts. But you can always come back to Mumbai to Maine. You can find me on Instagram at Mumbai2, the number two, Maine, um, and on Facebook at Mumbai to Maine as well. So I'm looking forward to hearing from your viewers. And um, in the meanwhile, I'm looking forward to every one of the Fun Dish episodes. I've listened to quite a few of them now. Um, I think we've had two or three up, and they've been so inspiring i've learned so much and kudos to you both for some fantastic collaborative work here thank you so much sheree thank you so much this is so great to have you on to talk about all these things thank you guys and thank you ladies have a good night so for any of our listeners who would like to find out more about feminish and what our mission is you can find us online at www www.femadish.com we're also on facebook and instagram as femadish our podcast can be streamed through our website and just about everywhere else you might get a podcast and we thank you all for joining us this evening and we look forward to speaking to sheree and many others in the future We were trying to save the world I was picking up the house Why don't you put it down? Come over Come over